I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Brad. Yes. Do you know how we fund the program going off track? I know exactly how we fund it. There's one source of income for us, and that is Patreon.com slash going off track, where our loving patrons give us money and we give them bonuses. Patreon, stop making up words. <laughs> it's a great place. We do a weekly Thursday night fireside chat. Brad takes all the embarrassing things I say in podcasts that he doesn't put into podcasts and puts it on the Patreon. Funny pictures of Brad in the 90s, usually naked or wearing a wristband. Please sign up. Brad, what's the address? Patreon.com slash going off track. Brad, you ready to take a trip down memory lane with me? I'm ready to go to Mars. Yeah. Can you, this podcast goes all the way from the 12 year old version of me to theoretically a person going to Mars by 2035. Yeah. I mean, that is an expansive podcast, multi generational. Yeah. But uh, I was from so you, happy to, from you playing football to your kids going to Mars. I mean, come on. That's what happens in this podcast for real. Yeah, this is like um this is like a Scorsese film <laughs> in a podcast. Exactly. You know? And I'm not even gonna be really old and pretend I'm young like De Niro. <laughs> Didn't work. Uh but anyway, this was a blast. I'd wanted to have Torsten on for a while. And it's just not every day that uh the guitar player of your first band becomes a spacecraft engineer for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at NASA. Can we just call him a rocket scientist? Because <laughs> that's what he is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's incredible. It's it's really like one of those, I, you know, I always knew, you know, like, like we talked about in the interview, Torsten and I would see each other in LA and I always knew he was doing stuff like this and we'd always catch up. And then, you know, by like 2012... When I see he's like literally on this team, you know, putting a rover into space. And then, uh, you know, just this last year, you know, being even further up in the team, uh, leading the Perseverance rover to Mars. And, you know, he's been posting about it on his social medias. And it's just like so fascinating, uh, not only how he got there, but just what the process is like now and the kind of mindset of someone who does that, you know. Something that became clear even from researching this interview and speaking to him is like, it might be similar to music, 
right? Where the people who uh, excel in these fields kind of can maybe tap into a part of their brains that like a normal person can't. Oh, absolutely. You know? And uh, the same thing that would drive, you know, a, a guitar player to, you know, practice his parts over and over again and make them perfect and add these tiny little dimensions here and there. Um, you could so easily see how the same skill set could be put into engineering or something, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah focusing so, on something you're excited about, man. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just to see him going from someone who, you know, built remote control cars to riding dirt bikes to like stealing his dad's Porsche, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like stuff like that. And just generally being like, you know, I don't know if you could pick up on it in the interview, Brad, but one of the coolest things about this guy is that he was always incredibly talented. You know what I mean? Right. And I think he had to know he was talented the whole time, you know, like it's not like he was doing things that other kids were doing, but you would literally never know about it. Oh yeah. And that's one of the greatest things about, you know, like you'll always find out by default, you'll be like, Oh, Torson was like a great tennis player. Oh, <laughs> he was like a great dirt biker. Oh, he was a great guitar player. Oh, he wrote his own like electronic music and has a band camp page, you know, but he always has this kind of like cool, chill modesty about him where he sort of accepts people, you know, exactly what they were. And, you know, I know this just came up a couple of weeks ago in my like Toby Morris interview, but in the same way, Torson's one of those people I just ran into at a super young age that made me feel really good about what we were doing. You know, right. um, he just made people made me feel like myself, like I could be myself. The, uh, the house that his parents had, like I said in the interview, kind of had this philosophical ease to it that a lot of houses and parents we knew at that time just didn't have, you know, it was forward. We, and, and who knows if they didn't set up that kind of environment, if, you know, our first band even ever starts and blah, blah, blah. The first living room band. Exactly. Yeah, that's a memory about it. The confabulation that I completely We're forgot. a living room band. Oh, we come from living room land. Yes, Brad. That's good. So, yeah, I mean, what a crazy story. I just was like, uh, I don't know, fascinated to talk to Torsten now and find out what the hell's going on out there, you know? It's a fun convo. Let's say... Do you have any like do you have any interest in going to space? No. Not. No. Hard no. Yeah, I'm not No, I don't. I'm not I've never have either. And I don't think like I don't think it's fear. I mean, maybe now it is. I'm like, you know, <laughs> I'm old enough so I don't need to go to space. Oh, I can't handle a G-force anymore. But uh I just I think I always kind of realized that it was just it's a big fucking sacrifice. <laughs> to get there. You know what I yeah, mean? Right. Sure. Like, I mean, yeah, maybe in 40 years, all you'll have to be is rich, but right. Ever Just since I've been alive, it's like, you know, it, I, I knew when I was, you know, 12 years old that the guy that, that, that to be an astronaut, you had to be not only be the cream of the crop, but fucking work your ass off. Yeah. Right. You know? I mean, even so. just that simple fact, they said, what a person, 
who would eventually go to Mars. I mean, it'll be uh, two years at least before you even ever saw that person again. Yeah, exactly. I never had that commitment for getting off the planet. Although I would, (laughs) I've always been enamored by the idea of anti-gravity, of being able to experience that at some point. That would be fun. We got to somehow, maybe as Torsten goes higher up and higher up in JPL, we can convince him to toss us into one of those those planes those pressure chambers <laughs> oh but that's <laughs> not anti-gravity though that's that's all oh, right that's just fucking cold as hell <laughs> oh yeah i think we could get into one of those anti-gravity things then it's, it's crazy though and it made me think I, I wish i was able to ask that pale blue dot question a little more eloquently i realized i was kind of stumbling as i said it but i really do think you know once we have a chance to look back on this time and reflect on what the fuck is actually going on. There really seems to be some causation to me between this image appearing in, I think like the early to mid nineties of the earth from a great distance, really seeing like, you know, this fleck of dust amidst the galaxy. And then Carl Sagan writing this thing that essentially like, all of our earthly minutia is just part of this tiny speck. And you really shouldn't think about it like that. This has to have some kind of fallout to what we're dealing with now, because if there's anything like, I mean, there's a lot of things religion does, and this could turn into a long intro, (laughs) but it also, it, it makes people feel mutually exclusive, right? Mm -hmm. Like it makes people feel self-important. It makes you feel like there's someone watching your life and the moves you make are worthwhile. And when you match that psyche with the pale blue dot, I think you're almost like slamming people with an existential problem that they are not prepared for. And I think it has something to do with the way like our minds and our society is coping with it right now, because we're kind of in this like, post-religion, I hope, neo-contemporary society that's moving in some kind of way. And I think the 25 to 30 years of fallout from that photo like have something to do with it. I'm just not smart enough or researched enough to put it on paper or, <laughs> or, or act on anything more than instinct and anecdotal evidence. But I do think there's something to it. Do you think there's something to it? Uh, I think it definitely had an impression on you, Benny, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Brad. Leave it to the son of a biblical archaeologist to just take you down a peg, you know? Good for you. We we had a good 90 minutes with Torsten. You want to dig into this? Let's go. Three, two, one. Ha! <laughs> Don't fuck around, Brad. I was just, <laughs> Torsten, just before this, I was texting Brad because we, we had assumed you would jump in and jump out because you're a scientist and you needed to check that it would work first. And oh, yeah. I was like, Brad, <laughs> he said, there's a robot drone hovering outside my window. And I said, Listen, Torsten could definitely vaporize us from space if he wanted to. <laughs> At least he knows the guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, just uh, 
just just make sure you stay on my good side, you know? Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I'll mince my words. So what's up, man? Yeah. So glad you could come on. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Um yeah, it's good to good to hear your voice. And uh yeah, yeah, lots of lots of exciting stuff happening here. So when's the uh when's the actual physical last time we spoke? Was it like in person Ooh. in LA somewhere? Probably in LA, yeah. I think I think maybe um it was definitely when you were when you were touring and coming through here. Um, yeah. I think we probably spoke on the phone one time and crossed paths, but weren't able to meet up. We're probably like one of the last times, but um, God, it, it would have been years. So, um, but yeah, man, we you know we we've been been in contact a little bit and email space and other ways. So I feel I feel connected, you know. Oh, always real real friends always poke their heads around. You know, yep. you don't have to talk to them all the time. You know that you'll get to it eventually. Well, bandmates, you guys were and, in a band, right? Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. literally like my entry into all of it, you know, was mm-hmm. this band like and this group of guys. So this is a good place to start. Torsten, are you familiar with the term confabulation? Uh, I have a good idea what it is. It's uh, kind of um, uh, mixing a couple things together, right? And and just kind of uh, um, uh, uh, mixing things up. That's right. right? So it's, yeah. So it's essentially like when you go further and further away from a memory, that your you know brain does a natural. Uh, I don't know what you'd even call it, but it naturally fills in the gaps with something that just makes sense. That's something that you can huh. assume took place or a person you assume did something. And then you tell yourself that enough and it becomes the actual story due huh. to a gap in memory, not because you're intentionally fabricating it. So that being said, I've told the story about me like entering Dilemma, which was our band. I believe X Dilemma X for a short time because of John Mopper. Um <laughs> And here's my, I want to see if my memory of it matches up with your memory or if I'm suffering from confabulation. Okay. <laughs> this will be a fun game. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so here's my, like, I, I wrote down my general, you know, not too deep, but my general gist of what happened. <clears throat> I remember Nick Park of the legendary Park family in Bradley Gardens being your drummer John Mopper saw me in a Nirvana t-shirt in school and heard I played drums. Apparently, Nick Park wasn't working out. So I came to Joe Alessandra's house. I don't know if I brought my drum set or not. Certainly didn't have a car. And I tried out Come As You Are by Nirvana to get entry into the band. Then I remember our first show being at Bill Farrington's house who was in a Nirvana cover band called Verse Chorus Verse. I remember they played, and then we played our three songs, which was Operation Liberation, A-Bomb by SNFU, and Bro Him by Pennywise. And then Verse Chorus Verse started playing again, and the people there asked us to play our mini three-song set again. (laughs) So this is like my general hopefully non-confabulated memory of how that came to pass. Is it similar to yours? What did I fill in or not? You, you know, 
Ben, this is going to be interesting because we don't have like a ground truth, right? Like, like, right. like, like, <laughs> like it's just my confabulations versus yours yes. at this point, you know? But two confabulations could lead us to a little bit of a push towards science, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, there's a, a statistical element there that right. is, uh, that, that, um, <laughs> you know, if we do have, uh, uh, corroborating stories, right? Then, That's then right. there's a higher chance of it actually being reality. But that was that was actually uh, remarkably um, accurate and something that I haven't thought about in so long. <laughs> you know, so uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, a couple things though that that might be the case that you tried out at, at Joe Alessandro's house. I can't remember that. Like yeah. the earliest memory I have of us playing was actually in my living room. Oh, okay. Oh my God. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. I, I feel like we were there before, in, in, you know, at my house before we went to Joe's. I think so, actually. And then when it got kind of like full bandy, it went to Joe's basement. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. That is true. I forgot uh, that. So we uh, started as like a living room band, not even a basement <laughs> band. Yeah, we were like on carpet in the living room, <laughs> right. you know, basically like 13 years old. And, yeah. Uh, was there yeah. a drum set at your house? No, you, you brought yours, okay. I think. Man, or, so yeah, yeah. That must have been my mom in the Ford Tempo. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So that How is this going to be interesting for anybody else besides for me and you, Ben? Oh, uh, <laughs> Torsen, this is called going off track. I'm not yeah. working for anyone here, you know, like, like this is, yeah. I just wanted to have you, I mean, this is fascinating to me. I mean, we talked about this a little on the last episode too, and it's, I really find this stuff fascinating, especially these days and now raising kids is like, you know, when you really think back to like the minutia of certain things and how little, you know, uh, just little turns one way or the other, a little passing with somebody one way or the other really set your course, you know? Mm -hmm. So when I started, you know, uncovering this, I, I realized again, you know, like you, I hadn't really peeled back the onion of this in so long and then realized just really how formative it was for me, you know, um, mm -hmm. you know meeting all of you and starting down that path because Booking Dilemma shows is how I started booking shows, which yeah. turned into like a very serious thing for me and kind of basically set me on the path of the music industry. So, yeah. It, and, you know, when I look back to that time, Ben, and, you know, and I think about, you know, the dynamic and, and our band and, and what and what you brought to the table is uh, honestly, you're a horrible drummer. <laughs> it's um, true. It's true. And, but 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 what you did was you were you were you were an incredible networker you uh, know and uh -huh. you just had you you just you you just had a way to make friends with everybody and to foster those relationships and to um and to uh generate opportunities and all those things yeah, yeah. it's interesting you, now that you say that i guess the the drums caught up yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah kind of. Right. Like, because I mean, <laughs> I listen, like, yeah. Torsen's not lying. Okay. Yeah. When we, when I listened to this Dilemma demo, which to us was like the peak of recording quality. I mean, we really, <laughs> for a band recording a six Kong cassette at the time, 
I mean, we actually went to a real studio. We actually had a layout printed. Like, it was like as close to an official demo release as you can get. And uh-huh. the drums on that are insane. Like, <laughs> I literally just did not know how to play a straight beat at all. And when I try, you can hear me painfully trying. And I remember the trick, because you guys had unusually large amplifiers for our age. And I remember, like, no one could hear me. (laughs) And you guys were always just like, yo, hit harder. (laughs) But then we came up with, like, some scheme that I could play the same exact terrible beat, but make the China symbol, like, the lead symbol, which is, you know... Like the most, Brad here is a recording engineer, so he probably just shuddered when I said that. <laughs> and I'll, I'll never forget yeah. when we went to this, uh, was it like the Pinebrook Studios to record that demo? God, um, your memory, dude. How did and, you remember that name? You know, wait, why, let me guess. The engineer took away your, your ride. I wouldn't let him. <laughs> this is where Torsten's story adds up. I was already like kind of a dick who like thought I knew exactly what I needed. So I showed up to this studio. I'll always remember the studio because famously Mike Judge had recorded there. Not Ooh. in Judge, but in Mike Judge and Old Smoke, which was his like weird <laughs> blues album he tried to make afterwards. And we went up to that studio. I had no idea how to change heads or tune drums. So I had lined the inside of my drums with like egg crate, like bedding. And put the heads on. So literally my drums just sounded like dead bodies. You know what I mean? Like no (laughs) ringing or resonance whatsoever. And then half the songs, I'm also riding the China symbol. And I kind of remember this guy giving me attitude and me just being like, yeah, I don't know, man. Just got to deal with it. It's the way I want it. Like like walked in like uh, Bernard Purdy or something, you know? Mm -hmm. But what are you going to do? You did have... Did you have a flying V and a fifty-one fifty? Uh, that uh, Joey had the fifty-one fifty, and <laughs> right. um, and I had uh, I had the um, uh, the 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 four by ten uh, Fender Bassman. Uh, okay, yeah, for for the amp, and uh, cranked you know all the way to play try and play over Joey. Yeah, <laughs> and, right. Uh, yeah, he was right, loud. and and um, and. You know, for no reason, he was an awesome guitarist. Um, yes, and uh, and you know, um, just because that's the way it was when you were a kid. Um, but um, but yet, I just remember the engineer just being a total drunk, man. Oh yeah, yeah, he was. Bad. You know, I yeah. think if I had a better sense of the world and people at that point, I definitely would not have gotten along with that person. But yeah, since I was like thirteen. And thought I was walking into like the Metallica "Nothing Else Matters" video, <laughs> you know, like he was just—he uh. was put on a pedestal. Regardless, this was an adult who owned a recording studio, which was basically like some version of a demigod to me at the time. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, back then, it's just like that was the only only uh, game in town. You know, right. it's like there was no laptops and digital recording interfaces and you know all the technology that we just like enjoy and just is incredible these days for doing your own stuff but like you know you had to go and you had to do a reel to reel and and you know and and it was all analog you know um yeah it's interesting like when i think back um 
you know, I, I really like met you and got to know you around that time, even though we lived really close together for a while. Yeah. And, you know, by the time I met you, you were already playing guitar, already into skateboarding. Um, you were already like fucking around with your dad's cars, already fucking around with the motorcycle. Like, yeah. what, you know, when I think back, you know, you had this like really broad understanding of a lot of things at a young age. Like, can you remember when that curiosity for everything started and how, Oh geez. How you almost like had the time for all of it. Cause I think of like a 14 year old kid who is already proficient at a, at a bunch of different things, you know? Oh yeah. Thanks Benny. Um, yeah. I mean like, Honestly, I remember having, you remember, there was this like little park by our house. And I remember like, just like playing around. And by the way, you know, we used to play football when we were really young as neighborhood kids. Right. Okay. We You're, played some you, tackle and rolling knolls park. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. so, you know, you know, we, we go back, man. You did it. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. We, like I, you know, I think like, you know, eight years old, just neighborhood kids. Can you imagine Taurus and our friendship has survived? neighborhood football games, being in a band together <laughs> and a 3000 mile relationship for like 20 years. Like I yeah. think you're stuck with me, bud. Oh man, God, what the <laughs> fuck did I do to deserve this shit, man? And now it's like, now it's like I'm taking time out of my work day and, and I know, just, that's I'm it. just shooting, the, sh- shooting the shit with you guys. People asking something. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Um, <laughs> I got to pay you back for all those free tickets to the Palladium and stuff like that. um, Yeah. You know, I, as far as interests go, I think it's just kind of like, if I really look back at my life and give you a serious answer for how, you know, I kind of at the time, like it's, it's, it's almost, it's a little bit of a neurosis with me. Mm. It's, it's a problem actually, because like, I really have a problem like resting. You know, right. <laughs> and and as, right, right. as, as, you know, that sounds kind of weird, but it's like, I'm, I'm just like, um, just inherently such a person who is so unhappy, uh, sedentary, you mm. know? And yeah. like, so, so I just like, I'm just always doing something and like burning candle at both ends and not really. Um, so it's, there's a lot of freaking time in life. And the other <laughs> yeah. thing, you yeah. know, and not to get too preachy here, but it's like one thing I just told somebody who kind of said something similar to me about, you know, like, how do you, how did you kind of get into all this stuff and develop these different skills? And it's like so many people I feel like now and, you know, are just like, um, they just bounce back and forth from one thing to another on like on short time scales, you know? Mm. And like, if you can just like chill and focus on one thing, for yeah, like six right. months, you know, like, like you'd be surprised how far you can get with that kind of devotion. Right. To yeah. Something. It's like, it's like people have like a, they're like proud of um, like a general surface knowledge of many things, but yeah. don't, don't really dig in. You think that's just like, a, you know, maybe the culmination of, um, you know, social media and internet culture when anybody has access to everything and, Mm-hmm. That yeah. delineation between like an expert and a and an amateur is maybe like a little harder to find. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think you know it's been said before, but you know it, it definitely is an attention span type of thing, right. you know. Right. And I don't think I think it was it, I think that it was going on before social media, 
and like sure. kind of a, a trend towards that even without it. But that definitely hasn't made anything any better in that respect. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, but it's really just about like, if you could just like, if you just like devote to something and you, and you, and you put all your energy into it for, for an, for an appreciable amount of time, whether that's six months or a year or three months for whatever it is, like you really can, you'd be surprised how, how far you can get with something with just that, with, with just the focus, you know? When, when you, when you do that stuff, do you have a tendency to like get bored with it after you master it? And it's like, okay, now's the next thing. Um, I do. I do. I, I would say that like, um, especially when, um, for me, I mean, it's, it's, it's my own f- fault. I would say I'm like, I'm like good at a lot of things, but I'm great at nothing, <laughs> you know? Wow. Um, I mean, and like, and like it's, um, and I think there is a point where I start to, um, once there's diminishing returns, like even myself, I, I do get, I do get, um, antsy and wanting to move to the next thing. You yeah. Know? So even um, you have to tell yourself, no, like stick with it. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a struggle, you know, like, sure. yeah. I mean, just recently, I mean, that's like, you know, I was like, I was like really into cycling for like the past five or six years. And All like, right. It's just yeah. like, and it's like, and it's like, I got to a point where I was just like, just, um, plateauing on it. And I just felt like I wasn't willing to take it any farther to really get to the next level and, and not willing to make that commitment. So kind of been focusing on other things. And that's an area I think where I've like shown a lot of um, consistency and a lot of work towards that I've kind of um, not abandoned, but just, uh, just um, deprioritized. (laughs) Or did you just step up to super bike racing? Uh, That's more (laughs) of a return. That's like a midlife crisis, you know, (laughs) like more than anything. Right. I was yeah. telling Brad before what you're up to. He's like, those things go 140 to 160. Goodness. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, they're insane. Like the only, oh man, we're all over the place right now, but I'm just like, yeah, I mean, they're just like, they're, they are crazy fun. <laughs> like the only way I can describe it is like, you know, like when you were a kid watching Star Wars and they're like right. zooming around on those little white things in the Ewok village through yeah, the forest. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> like it's the closest thing you can get to one of those things. You right, know? right. So well, the thing that shocked me when you're, well, there's two things about what you were saying yesterday. It shocked me. Uh, a was that the straightaways when you're going 140 miles an hour or when you're resting. And then <clears throat> I needed you to actually <laughs> explain to me like, you you said holding on to something with a zero to sixty of a tilde two point five s is a lot of force. I even googled it and I couldn't figure out what that meant. What's oh, that mean? Zero to sixty miles per hour in two point five seconds. Oh, and approximately. I should. <laughs> yeah, no, that's I my engineer. I should have figured brain. that one out. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all right. It's all right. Jeez, Ben, come on. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, my education stopped in like 1997. So, <laughs> um, man, yeah. the trick is keeping that front wheel down at that. At oh that yeah, and just holding on to the thing. It's just uh, it's it's crazy physical. Um, it's super fun, but it's a weird thing, man. Weird thing that I do, and it's not really super. I guess you know I've always been a speed demon and stuff, but it's not really. I, I wouldn't say it's like super congruent or symmetric with my life. It's hmm. just this odd, oddball thing that I got into and, and enjoy. But um, and are you actually racing? 
I was, I, I actually was a, a professional until I was 25. So I started when I was oh, 19. Um, it, it took me about, um, took me about uh, four years working up through the ranks and, um, and, and kind of winning and, and doing pretty well on like a club level. Eventually I got my pro racing license and then I was racing in nationals for two years and placing wow. like top 20. Um, at least on the U.S. level, um, and uh, and so I was super into it. But it, it's like it was like a, I stopped right around um, when I was 26 to go to grad school because it was just like a drug addiction. It was <laughs> like you know, it was like it's it's like I had a good job. I was like an engineer, and like every year I had like a little less money, and I was like eating ramen, like just trying to support the habit. <laughs> Right, right. And, and it just got to be to the point where I was just like, you know, like, this is a lot and I need to like, I need to, to like, go to like a therapy session to wean off this, you know? (laughs) Is, is there a serious like professional level to it or are the people lifelong dedicated to it really just dedicated to it for the sport? Well, I would say it's much smaller in the U.S. Um, so in the U.S., but still the top people in the U.S. Um, still, at the pro- I would say the top five professional athletes are still making seven figures a year. Um, but the, on the world level, um, it's huge. It's like oh, it's like okay. Formula One. Like right. you're talking about eight figure salaries for oh, the top wow. people in the world. Like they're they're making like their Kobe Bryant salaries. Like and what are the biggest they, countries for that? Uh, Italy, Spain, um, and uh, those are like probably the two biggest areas um, where you get folks. England, um, and uh, yeah, so it's like a lot of um, a lot of it's really big in Europe, and you get like uh, you get some um, Asian talent as well, Southeast Asia, Japan, Brazil. Um, all, there's pro riders from all those places, and there's. You know, this is like, and now there's starting to be U.S. again. U.S. traditionally have had people on the world level, but there's been a drought the last couple of years. And now there's starting to be some younger riders that are starting to filter into the world level and are doing pretty well. So it's good to see. But anyhow, yeah. So what was your machine, dude? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> as, as far as like what I used to race or right yeah, now? Yeah, what were you riding? Um, I was riding uh, two different bikes um, over my career. It was... Uh, Oh, a Yamaha um, R6 uh, super sport bike, and uh, and then a GSXR 600, and um, and so those were the and they were like super sport level bikes. It basically is um, uh, it's not unlimited modifications, and because I could not afford that, even right. spending all the money that I was doing, I needed to like basically race in in like a tier down level just to manage the, the costs, yeah, um, right. you know. But like it was still like like it, it's super you know competitive and prestigious, almost more competitive, a little bit more about rider than than just machine and money that you throw right, at it. Right. So right. How much was well, your- the what oh. I used to ride, and I realized that you know that motorcycles a long time ago kind of reached the maximum power that you could you know keep them it was keep them on the ground, <laughs> like keep that front wheel down. Uh-huh. You, know, you talk about going from zero to sixty in two seconds and. You can't go any fast. You can't do it any quicker because you'll flip yeah. over backwards, right? Yeah, yeah. And now it's really just 
how fast can you go from zero from a hundred to hundred and sixty? Right. That's the other uh, thing right. is is I you know I realized that really what defined a killer bike. I got on a Ducati one time and was cruising through the countryside doing about sixty. And I thought, wow, I wonder how fast, you know, how quickly I could get to 90. And by the time that thought was out of my head, I was going 90 miles an hour. And I thought, oh, that's how fast. That's the (laughs) difference between a fucking sick bike and a bike is one that, not one that goes from zero to 60 in three seconds, but one that goes from 60 to 90 in like one second. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 they're just such insane machines, like power to weight, like, like it, it's, it's, um, it like, I mean, to give you an idea, like on like, on like the, you know, the leader class bikes these days, you can be going 80 on the highway and, and, you know, gas it, dump the clutch and, and the rear wheel will spin, you know, <laughs> wow. looking for Jesus. traction. Like oh, think about shit. that, you know, <laughs> it's like they're death traps, man. They're, they have no place on public roads. Right. You really? know? Yeah. Yeah. In my opinion, you know, I mean, it's fine. People do whatever you want, you know, but like, but like for me, like I have no interest in riding those kind of machines on public roads. Like that's why I do close course stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. What would it take like engineering wise, say, say you wanted to, to get a bike to go up to 200 miles an hour. What would Mm -hmm. you have to do to it? So it wouldn't flip. Oh, it's all tra- these days. The electronics are insane. They have accelerometers. They have sensors on the wheels to me- measure wheel spin. Uh-huh. And you've got like a lot of active electronics that are that are helping the pilot um, control the the bikes and and what the the horsepower they produce. So there's tons of work and, and development. And that's like the big biggest difference, you know. For you know, for for Brad, you know, like the bikes that I used to ride that probably you used to ride. They didn't have any of that stuff. And these days they've just increased the horsepower. They're way more um, capable, but they, they have electronic assistance to, to help you manage that. That's crazy. Did you do all the work on your bikes yourself when you were full into it? No, when I was into it, um, we actually, we had a crew chief on the team. Oh, um, wow. that, okay. Yeah. So it was like, it was a team with a mechanic and, um, who volunteered a lot of his time. And, uh, one of the people in my life that has been probably the most generous, you know, as a guy by the name of Dominic Medina and, um, and he's the, the stuff that he's put up and done, you know, uh, for me, and I still maintain a relationship with him um, uh, to this day, but it was, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, but but I mean, for the most part right now, you know, I do, I do most of the work all myself and um, it just, it just helps. You know? Yeah. I saw a quote yeah. from a, another story about you uh, where you said a lot of the people that I love that are very brilliant have never turned a wrench before where it's very theoretical and math based. Do you think, mm-hmm. I mean, it's obvious you think that way, but there's like, um, how much of an advantage do you have in your field now because of so much of your physical background? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's pro, you know, it's definitely something that helps. Um, you know, it's just because, you know, engineers, they, they really have the work. We we're we're balancing this all the time, but it's like, um, there's really a tendency for over conservatism and, pr- mm. and protectiveness in a right. design and, um, and, uh, you know, nobody wants their piece or their function to fail. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and they and therefore they they hold on to a lot of margin a lot of times more than's needed or more conservatism in a design that can manifest itself in any number of different ways. Yeah. And being able to sniff that out, I think having a physical sense for what what does forty newton meters feel like, for instance, mm. like like and you're gonna and and so you're gonna stand up and tell me this is gonna this part's gonna break at forty newton meters like. I can see this thing, you, you know, I mean, there's like computers and stuff to help you with you programs that help you with like structural analysis and things like that. But it gives you a certain, um, I would say spidey sense to try and tease out, um, uh, weight and over conservatism and design just with like the physical reality of knowing, knowing that type, those type of things. So it's almost like the, you almost have the ability to to see this machine at, at its maximum, like like mm-hmm. because you've been there before and you know what the actual parts can can handle, like that kind of vibe. Yeah, it's 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 That's just it's just about you know uh, design margins and right. um, and things like that, and being able to uh, to try and kind of sniff out places um, and 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 things that might not have enough, or which is. Which is usually more rare, or are the, or where they're holding too much. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, I, I read about you know the the machines you're making and how you know you have to ensure that you know this um, machine's going to be operational for two years without without mm-hmm. any service, right? Without a person touching it. So, mm-hmm. it, like, um, I have to imagine that there is like a big call for. Uh, to be as careful as possible. So how can you gauge, is that where like a team comes in, like working with other people, how you can gauge, like what's the, the absolute max you can get out of this stuff? Oh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a huge team. Can I just ask the question? I mean, does, does everybody know what I do? Oh, uh, we're, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to do like intros and outros for, oh, uh, okay. yeah, for the All episode. Right. So I'm going to give you the full, like, the full grand tour of who you are. I see. Okay. Yeah. All right. Got got it. I wasn't sure whether we had that background, um, but <laughs> it's good. We're we're a little casual here, though. It's good that you're looking out for us. Yeah. You're, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Smart. <laughs> I can just see everybody listening, just being like, like "Who the this fuck guy, is this guy? Motorcycle rider, guitar player." <laughs> yeah. It's like, like what, what is this, this dude? Yeah. It's yeah. like, yeah, he's like the dude down the street from Ben. You know. Um. So uh, let's see here. Question. Um. Yeah, yeah, big big team, um, definitely, and th- and that's part of the part of the problem, right? When you work on something that has this many components, right. and uh, and and really where no one person can wrap their mind around the whole thing, and you've got you've basically got um, siloed areas that are working on different components and different designs. Right. Um, that's what that's where I come in, um, and you can think of me in my job as a synapse in a brain rather than a node. So I will never know as much about it, about a single singular thing on the Rover than somebody who's, who's a node for, uh, for that particular component. Uh-huh. But what I do have is, is the right skill set to understand, to absorb what's happening at that node and then to relay that information to other places that need that and to try and look across the design and all these nodes to try and optimize or um, help in the decision-making because the nodes don't have the the broader view of what's going on to be able sometimes to make the the, the right decision for the whole vehicle. 
Interesting. So are you actually part of the, um, like the initial design prior, prior to build? Yeah. So this was, this was, this mission, uh, perseverance was kind of, um, different for me in that, um, I came on, uh, I, I came on much earlier than I ever have, um, on, on previous missions. So, like on, on Curiosity, which was the previous rover in 2012, right. I, I kind of came on when we were, when we had already, um, done a lot of the design and actually, um, started to build like the box level components. And I came on as like a tester where I was oh, looking okay. for problems and, and starting to use all those components, what they call on a system level and a test bed. Hmm. So that's where I came on for, for Curiosity. Now forward in time, um, after we landed Curiosity and we started to get really into the details on the next one, I came on about six mu- six years before we launched Perseverance, and we were still in conceptual phases at that point. Hmm. Like the rover actually didn't even look like it did right now. We had two robotic arms on the front. Huh. Um, there was there was details that are way different just from an architectural standpoint than where we've actually settled. Right. So. I was actually part of like a lot of the um, chief engineer sessions where we were like whiteboarding and and um, and trying to um, make the right decisions uh, on like the just the basic architecture of this vehicle. So I did I did come on during design and uh, and influenced certain components there. In addition, right after that, there was there's like um, there's also another uh, phase where you're actually developing requirements. So like, for instance, like on this mission, we wanted to grab, grab cores, right? Right, right? right, Well, what does that mean actually? What does that core look like? What's valuable for science, right? Like how big does it have to be? How much mass? How deep do you want to go? How much fracturization can you guys take in that sample and have it actually still be scientifically valid? Do you guys want to look at the magnetic history of that thing? You know, and because if we like, generate too much emf with our radios and 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 it and it and it it scrambles the magnetic signature of those samples like how much can you actually take how much how many tesla you're working with like geologists you're working with totally chemists like all sorts of all sorts of people top planetary geologists and you know caltech tenured professors you know you name it and really to um to define what success meant and to make sure that essentially they're our customer and making sure that what we're building as robotics engineers is meeting their needs. So that's how early I was on this mission is development of stuff like that. When when you're in like the initial concepts of it, is any of your design stuff like uh, artistic and aesthetic by default, like where you know, I know you have the engineering component where you're thinking exactly what you need to do, but in how to apply it, like how much um, artistry is in that and how much are you like looking to different people's robots and, and other people like yeah. in your scene or whatever? Yeah, so um, I can say that the only artistry in this is elegance and simplicity. There's an mm-hmm. artistry in simplistic design, Right. Right. And making things as least complicated and robust as you can possibly make it. But aesthetically, there is zero. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. it is literally just totally 
based in functionality and um, and and really in um, uh, really rooted in um, at the end of the day, you know, being as light as possible because right. there's whatever makes it on the rover, which is the component that I worked on. You can imagine the whole mission was a lot of different components. You had the the descent stage, which was the rocket jetpack that took it to the right, surface. You right. got the cruise stage. You've got the capsule. All these things. Well, if you put another, you know, kilogram on the rover, it means we've got to put another ten kilograms of fuel on the descent stage. Right. And then those tanks have to get bigger. And then all of a sudden, the tanks have to get bigger on the cruise stage. So there's like a butterfly effect. Anything uh-huh. we actually get onto the surface just grams. Like, like just balloon all the way back to the launch vehicle. Right. And, and just, and just, um, and so it is super, um, uh, not frivolous, I would say, <laughs> right, and bare right. bones. You Do you know? have like a, a mock environmental Mars? Yes, we do, but there are certain things that we will never be able to do. What's um, that? Uh, gravity. <laughs> okay, right. Yeah, so we'll never, we never can simulate a Martian gravity environment. Okay. Um, which is challenging. But what we can do is we have huge uh, vacuum chambers. And um, these are really expensive tests. So it's not like we do these things all the time. It's like they're kind of like targeted events. In right, the development right. of the mission, okay, but um, they're huge tanks, and we suck out all the air and basically and get it to Martian pressure, which is a very very thin atmosphere, okay, and and then um, and then we pump a liquid nitrogen through the tank shrouds, and that brings it down to um, um, like a representative Martian temperature, which like is what? minus minus one hundred and twenty C generally is where we is where we quali- qualify things to which is super cold right yeah. <laughs> yeah. just to give you an idea when we're doing these tests that there are two um liquid nitrogen trucks those big semis that show up on the hour to refill our liquid nitrogen um and to replenish it and so and if you're testing for three weeks 24 hours a day you can imagine, like, just on that level, this test starts to get really expensive, right? And all, all the engineers, so you can't just go and do this willy-nilly. They're like, they're like, but, but yeah, so, you know, to answer your original question is, is we do our best to simulate things. There are certain things that we, that we cannot get around, the biggest of which is being the gravity environment. Now, so. if, if you took a, to, to illustrate what the gravity environment is like, like, say, you figured out my air and temperature situation, which is obviously a situation, but we'll go past that. Like, mm. like how would my body move on like the Martian surface? Uh, you would be, you would be feeling very good um, because, <laughs> because you're, uh, you know, the, the gravity is one third of, of okay. Earth. So, okay. so you'd be jumping like Michael Jordan, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh man, I got to get in that pressure tank and throw some down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, yeah, man, yeah. Just yeah, I know. By the way, if you don't know, like, like when Ben was a kid, he was huge into basketball. Uh, you know, any, I don't know any, if that's yeah. persistent, but yeah. <laughs> any listener of this podcast certainly knows I am still a fucking huge nerd about basketball. I'm a yeah. uh, Brooklyn yeah. Nets season ticket holder. Uh, yeah. I just won a fantasy league on the back of Facundo Campazzo. 
So yeah, I'm still a fucking yeah. pretty big, pretty big nerd about it. So you and your team, you know, the initial team in, in 12, you were the first ones in the history of earth, right? To, uh, send something to Mars and, um, and it not be destroyed in travel or on the surface, right? Or the first thing to land on the surface that didn't get destroyed? Yeah, I will. I will. Let me, um, let me modify that statement slightly. Um, mm-hmm. so, so we actually had, um, we did a lander. Um, this was all, you know, basically uh, the lineage of our team at JPL. Um, you know, the, uh, so JPL is, stands as the only organization to, uh, to successfully land a vehicle on Mars and another planet right. just in general. So we're the only team to have done that in human history. That's kind of claim to fame. Um, so Russia actually sent something. It survived for a few seconds oh. of transmission and then okay. died. So they kind of, I guess, refute that claim a little bit. But <laughs> gotcha. honestly, I don't think that that's considered a success uh, personally. Um, so no offense to, or I don't know, offense to Russia, I guess. <laughs> um, so, so you know what? Here's the um, here's the thing though is we landed something successfully. Like I think it was like in '76 with Viking, um, right, and right. it was just a lander, right? And then in in 1997 we did uh, Pathfinder, which was just like a tiny little RC car type rover, right? right. Okay. And then in the mid-2000s, we did Spirit and Opportunity, which were kind of like ATV-sized rovers, right? right? And then the mission that I worked on was this Jeep-sized ton um, megalith robot that, um, that that landed in 2012, and that was Curiosity. So... I and my team weren't the first person people to put something and have it work on Mars, but gotcha. this the organization that I work for is 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 in fact the only the only folks to be able okay. to do that. Well, you're being modest. I'm going to tell everyone that that my friend <laughs> is one of the few on Earth who can make this claim. I was wondering, is there like a is there a scene, and are you like a, like a rock star in that scene? Like, are there <laughs> young, uh, you know, interns who, who come into JPL who are like, oh shit, that's like, that's Torsten Zorn. He like, he was this guy and this thing, you know, like the way I would look at, uh, you know, like Zach De La Roca or Bill Stevenson or something. Sure. Yeah, (laughs) there is, but I'm not on that level yet. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, I've got, you know, I'm doing okay. Like I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'd like to pat myself on the back is, you know, I'm a, pretty major player in this stuff and I've built a good reputation doing good work and um you know definitely I feel good about my rep but like um but uh but you know there's there's guys that are like that that are just kind of like um you know Illuminati uh in NASA and JPL <laughs> right. you know that are like older dudes like this yeah. like this guy was like you know, major dude on Apollo program or, you know, whatever, you know, there's guys like Gentry Lee who, you know, these are older gentlemen that are like rock stars. He's got a crazy story about how, um, he, he just made this deal, you know, with NASA that nobody thought was going to, uh, come to fruition. And he was like, proposed this project and ended up winning the bid 
and uh, and the and and the deal was that he'd be project manager, but uh-huh. he was like thirty years old. You know what oh, I mean? Wow. Like he was like a new new person in the career, and all of a sudden he just got catapulted into project manager okay. from like being a kid. You know, right, and um, right. and that's how he started his career. And he like authored books with Carl Sagan. Cool. stuff like that. And so there are people at JPL that are, that are like that and they're called fellows. Um, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm not there yet. <laughs> so you're not getting invited to like the secret camp outs in Colorado yet or the, uh, uh you- <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't comment. I got some things, you know, yeah, yeah. I got some things that I'm involved with, but, um, you know, but it's, uh, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, for the record, um, uh, you know, I'm not on that level. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, maybe next Rover. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, since you brought up Carl Sagan, I actually had a, a question about that, which was, you know, I've always liked, uh, the concept of the pale blue dot and, you know, um, I don't know, just like potentially what, uh, that photo may have done for human history in a lot of ways. And, I had had a thought recently, especially when I had kids that, you know, did, did, if, if spirituality changed post 1994, once they got this image, like just the simple concept that all earthlings can now see our entire existence of the planet in such a finite and like minute way, I, I feel like there was no no other path than that had to change spirituality because of how people were seeing stuff now. And um, mm-hmm. I wonder what you think about that and how introducing such a concept to like a kid, you know, showing you that you are just this tiny piece of a, a, an infinite system is teaching that to a kid like, okay when you're not teaching them like any spirituality because it's kind of scary for some people to swallow i just wanted to know what you think about that who i mean yeah i mean i would have to say again this is you know this is touching on something that is uh is is you know a personal um yeah uh thing you know and and i'm no more um an expert on on these kind of matters than than anybody else you know and um but uh agree to disagree uh, <laughs> uh, yeah but i mean i i think it's i i think it's okay and and necessary um but um but i think it's it's key to to say that uh, with with that is to give the full story here that there is nothing that science has discovered you know that has that has discredited anybody's spiritual beliefs, right? right? Uh Like, like, like there's nothing that we have discovered that has proven beyond a shadow of doubt that there is, that there isn't another power or another force or something higher. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, 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 um, and, uh, and in my, in my belief, you know, it, it, you know, all, all, although I tend to be, um, um, I would, I would say I'm an atheist, um, you know, my personal, by person, my personal choice, sure. um, you know, um, but, uh, but I would say that, um, you know, that it's important to, um, for people to understand that the science and what we're finding and, you know, your, your example of the, of the pale blue dot, 
you know, it's, it's not, it's not attempting to, to discredit that. I mean, you could a, a lot of times in a lot of ways say it's like, we're, we're just trying to get closer and that's human nature, you know? Mm. And so do, now in your field, like, do you find, you know, your colleagues, um, to be like generally agnostic and atheist as you get into this stuff? Do you ever see a blending of like faith and science from, from your perspective? I, I do actually, it's, it's kind of all over the map. Um, but it's, it's kind of actually rare to get a glimpse into it because, mm. um, it's JPL is, um, is a amazing place in in a lot of ways. And, um, and, and, it, and it's also like unique within NASA. Um, you know, you kind of think of, of NASA as, you know, um, pocket protectors and, and, you know, white shirts <laughs> sure, and sure. pretty, you know, pretty conservative, um, you know, uh, straight laced, maybe militaristic. Um, you know, those are things that you think about traditionally. JPL very much is like, like a rogue actor. Um, like okay. if you, if you look at like the beginnings of JPL, like you'll find connections to like fr- people like Frank Molina, who is like, you know, like, um, you know, in the, in the McCarthy era with the red scare, you've got, you've got Jack Parsons, who's got, who's got right. ties to, um, to Aleister Crowley, you know? <laughs> right. And like, these were misfits that right. started this place, you oh, know, sure. that were like experimenting with explosives for military right. contracts, yeah. you know, and, and, um, and, and that were part of cults, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Right. So right. that's, that's the beginning of JPL, yeah. you know? And, and like in a lot of ways, the people at JPL in general, you know, right now, you know, there's always a change of the guard. You've got a lot of young people who are excited about space, uh, a lot of, you know, for lack of a better world, m- millennials, people that are coming in with, with a lot of, uh, good technical knowledge and, and kind of a fresh face, but you got a lot of, um, you know, old guard who are like, in a lot of ways, just like old hippies, man. Right. You know, they're yeah. like into space and they're listening to dark side of the moon and, and, <laughs> right. yeah. you know, and like, and they are, um, uh, different, yeah. you know? Um, <laughs> that's so that's the culture, um, in a lot of ways, that's a little window into the world. Can you remind me, did I actually answer your question? Oh, it was on faith. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, but it's a mix, you know, there's a lot of people, but we generally, you know, um, things are kept very professional there. You don't hear about people talking about politics, right? You don't hear people talking about religion. Um, in a lot of ways, people are cognizant of Unfortunately, those are a lot of ways that people find divisions mm. and they want to avoid those kind of conversations. Yeah. Um, right. And, and so, so it's, um, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit not part of the culture, I guess. You know, that makes sense that you would keep it close. It also, it's cool to hear that. It makes me think of how almost, um, you know, like, uh, the, the philosophers like Camus and Sartre were kind of, uh, seen to be like misfits and rogue of the philo- you know, of the philosophy at the time. And it was because they were just the first to really try to teach like a godless philosophy in the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like the people who started JPL, I mean, if we saw anything in the last four years, it's the idea that you need a certain type to have forward thinking, right? 
to mm-hmm. think of something that doesn't exist yet and actually try to set a course to get there would probably uh, uh, lend to some pretty creative and wacky people in a lot of ways, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and a lot of um, international effort, you mm-hmm. know, um, it's, it's pretty amazing. You know, when, when I used to walk around lab, you know, now we've been closed obviously for a while and a lot of this stuff is remote. Um, so there's not the community based anymore, but it's just amazing. It, it, you know, JPL is essentially like a campus Right. And just to walk around and hear like the different languages and just um, whether it's Asian or Iranian, um, you know, there's a, there's just a very, there's a, a big mix of, of people and cultures, you know, there. So yeah, it's, it, those are all positive things, you know, obviously. So. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, yeah. I want to get your opinion on something really important. Okay. Oh, all right. Probably the most important thing we're going to talk about today. Which is, who is the best robot in movie history? <laughs> best robot in movie history. <laughs> or we can do like a top three, because I know this is tough. At first, I was like, yeah. oh, there's just a couple. And then I started going down the list. It's hard. So yeah. does anything come to mind, or would you like me to give you some options? Well, no, no. I mean, I've got plenty of things yeah. coming to mind. Okay. Um, you know, but it's just like, you know, I, I think I think I can kind of answer this just straight off the cuff. Yes. You know, just as just as like you know what first comes into my mind. Yeah. You know, but like I probably I could have maybe more creative answer if I was like if I tried to contemplate it a little bit more. <laughs> sure. But I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to go for it. Yeah. Like um, uh, for me, like Terminator. Yeah. Okay. You know. Like I love, I love that robot. It's just so f- fucking wicked. We're talking um, T eight hundred or T one thousand. Um, I'm talking T two. I think. Right. I think okay. that's that's. I mean, T. <laughs> I don't know T one, man. I, now we're talking about which movie is better in my mind, and I can't really do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, so that's that's one. Um, I would say that definitely. Um, Definitely, I would go with uh, R2-D2, sure. obviously, classic. right? So so cute, so classic. <laughs> that, that just, like, comes right away. And the fact that he, like, was kind of like a, you know, a turret gunner on, on one of those, uh, what is it, the Falcon 9 or whatever? <laughs> right. I don't know. It's yes, just, like, right. dual like, kind use, of a badass, man. too, yeah. Yeah, he's a badass, and he's just this little cute thing. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then, and then... Uh, Okay, this one might be controversial, but um, I think, oh man, was, I'm trying to remember this movie, but uh, was, what, was the girl from Weird Science a robot? Ah, see, Ooh. now I'm glad you brought that up because <laughs> I had come across a couple of things like RoboCop oh, and yeah, I was like, yeah. that's out because that's a cyborg. That's not a robot. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. but Kelly McGillis in that film is a Kelly cent- LeBrock. Oh, I'm sorry, Kelly. I got it confused with the woman <laughs> from Top Gun. Uh, uh-huh. That she was essentially some uh-huh. early version of like a 3D printed woman, uh-huh. right? So uh-huh. did she? But did she have robot parts on the inside? She probably had actual tissued organs and stuff in there 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. So it, it kind of feels like that that is that's cheating. A little. You know? Like like you can't you can't say that like um you know the million dollar man was a robot. Right. You know? Right. Exactly. He had augmented parts. Like if you, you cut know? open T one thousand, there's a robot under there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um what yeah. about Johnny Five? Johnny Five, I thought about <laughs> about him immediately. Um, just because I don't know, Johnny five for me is, um, is like the, uh, the, he's, he's kind of like the closest thing to the rovers that we're building. He's got oh, really? like the googly eyes and the mast and kind of is like shaped the same, hmm. you know? So yeah. he's got a cuteness, I think there, um, you know, that, that, you know, he's got tank treads rather than tires, but you right, know, it's, right, right. you know, but, um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's good. It, you know, for me, you know, I don't know if I'd put him in top three because, um, because he's for the kids, you know? Right, 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 right. He so, didn't really have yeah. like a, a real world application we really needed him for, right? <laughs> no, just to be cute, cute, yeah. cute AF. So, yeah. The other ones that came up on this list that we didn't mention were C3PO, of course, uh, uh-huh. the Iron Giant. Uh, Iron Giant? What, what, what was that from? It's an animated movie. I believe Harry okay. Connick Jr. plays a voice. Uh, okay. It's really right. good. It'll make you cry at about 70 minutes. Um, <laughs> there's right. uh, Chappie. Oh, yeah, Chappie. Uh, That's a good one. <laughs> we have Eve or Wally from Wally. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, Dot Matrix from Spaceballs, Joan Rivers. Okay, yeah. She's yeah. good. That might be up there for me. Uh, <laughs> Jinx from Space Camp, and okay. also this is a good one. Bishop from Aliens. Ooh, okay, oh, yeah. All right. Which I thought was a solid creeper. You don't think of him as a no. as a robot. So, so I can't, I can't remember any of their names, but just on a robot movie level, do yeah. you remember there was a movie called Black Hole? I don't. It was oh yeah. It was actually put out by Disney. And um, it was kind of like a response to Star Wars. Oh, really? If you haven't seen it. It's like an art film, right? Yeah, it's really, it's really good. It holds up. And it's about like a rogue captain that just decides to send his like gigantic megalith of a ship into a black hole. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like he goes totally rogue and and insane. And it's really dark for a Disney movie. I kind of yeah, remember like it. a Lawrence Fishburne movie from the '90s taking on a similar concept. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, but I can't remember any of the robots there. But that one's got some good ones too. Uh, so that's yeah. a good one. We'll check that out. Say it tomorrow. I know you don't like to consider yourself a rock star in the scene, but I'm going to do it for you. If you got a call from like a big time action director, and he gave you the keys to design a movie robot. Yeah. And here's going to be the application of the robot, okay? I thought about this. It's going to be (laughs) something that rebel Earth forces will be using to defend themselves in the year 2112. Little nod to Rush there. And then (laughs) they will be fighting amorphous figures from another planet, but who are susceptible to human war machines but only attack chemically. Ah. 
So what okay. what are you thinking for robot design? Like, what do we need here? Well, first off, you're you're going to need something that's resistant to those chemicals. Um, yeah, right. You know, I mean, right off the bat. Um, but uh, but um, yeah, yeah. I guess um, I guess we're going to need something. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not sure whether I'm the person for this job. I don't design war machines, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've I've managed to steer clear clear of this in my career yeah. thus far. Um, in in spite of a lot of pulls, is that um, a pulling. pitfall that can easily happen in your career? Like people just get kind of lulled into that side well, of the engineering, the dark side. I when I was younger, I used to think of it more as a pitfall that I didn't want to like design lasers that were like, you know, going to like be blowing up tanks and stuff like that, you know, but, but, you know, as, as I'm a little older, I just have a little bit different of a perspective on it where I don't know, maybe I'm jaded, but it's just a little bit more acceptable. Like there's a, let's face it. Like there's a lot of forces in this world that are, that are bad and worse than the U S I know that the U S is not, not angels by any means, but sure. God, it feels like we're the lesser of two evils in some cases. And, and there needs to be these people to kind of keep that power balance in, in, in check, yeah. you know? So I've changed a little philosophically mm-hmm. um, on it. Um, and kind of, I would say I've gone more towards that end of the spectrum, right? but at the same time, like I feel like mil- military industrial complexes is, it's out of control, um, you know, with, uh, with the spending, um, like, you know, and this is my own personal opinion. Again, I'm not speaking on behalf of NASA or JPL, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, of course. this is just me talking, but like, you know, granted, like when we spend money on these things, a lot of it goes into the pockets of, you know, it's not actually like hard goods and things like that. These are like engineers and people and, right. you know, when the, so the military spending actually gets pumped back through the economy in, in a lot of ways just as the NASA budget does. So that that's a positive, but like, you know, we just spent $50 billion on the next strategic bomber that's getting built out at skunk works in Lancaster, California. Right. You know, $50 billion. Right. Yeah. And just to put that in perspective, like, like I know I'm a little skewed here, but like we, that is above the price tag for us to do a human mission to Mars. Right. Wow. And so, so like, what would you rather, we could, we could put somebody and have a human presence there for that kind of money, huh. you know, and granted, you know, 50 billion, you know, it can do a lot of good in a lot of other areas as well. You know, obviously like people, you know, people yeah, obviously want to, you know, talk about like, you know, spending for, for, um, you know, civil purposes and, you know, there's a a lot of political things, but like, but I do want to say that, you know, that $50 billion, when you do put it into that stuff, it, it's, it, you know, it's not just like it goes down the drain, like, like for a NASA mission, so little of it is actually like, is actually physical materials, right. Mm -hmm. That we're buying. It's like really all like brain power and time and and people's energy. You know, and that all goes into the economy in people's pockets, you know. Is is your mindset now of like kind of, you know, uh, that spending that much money investing in like essentially what, you know, what is like power brokering here on Earth? 
do you think, you know, we're better suited sort of in that, I think I've heard Elon Musk talk about it, that we're, you know, better suited putting that money into space, into things like that, because that's the inevitable future? Well, I, I think it's not an inevitable future, um, right. I think. But, um, but what I think that resonates with me that I think is Elon Musk belief, and, and even this is a, if this is a high off lofty goal, We've got to start somewhere, um, right. and and um, and honestly, I don't think that there is anything that could um, that could prevent us from extinction besides for being um, independent of of Earth. Wow. Um, okay. So I think if we're going to be truly like like um, like like a species that persists and has a longer history, that we will have to become unmarried to the earth. And, and, and I'm like, I'm fully like an, an environmentalist. And, you know, a lot of the work that I did early in my career was in earth observing um, environmental satellites to do all the foundation of the science of global warming today oh, wow. was, was the stuff that I worked on, you know, in my twenties. Interesting. Yeah. And, and so I'm fully on board with that and saving this planet first, you know? Um, but at the end of the day, like, there are like shit happens, you know, and whether it's an asteroid or it's another virus right. pandemic, you know what I mean? Um, like there will be something to kill us off. I love you know? the fact that we can like write hundreds of years of science books and tech and religious discourse and all these things. And it really comes down to two words, doesn't it? Shit happens, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we really yep. don't have control over that. So- yeah, yeah, you don't, and and I think that's that's the goal. I think it's to, um, I think it's just to be able to become independent and to diversify um, our habitability a little yeah. bit um, is um, is something that's going to need to happen. You know, but it's strange. It's like you know, I hate to get political with this stuff, but you know, from a layman's point of view, which is mine, you know, I see like news stories about space force. I see, you know, uh, China and the U S kind of vying for different positions on the moon space junk, you know, falling from the sky. So it seems Mm -hmm. like there's even already a kind of strong political element to space. Like, Mm -hmm. is that, um, are, are we just in a, in that kind of pitfall where we're sort of going to repeat the issues we had here on earth up there. Uh, Yeah, I think definitely that's going to be going to be an ongoing thing. I, I, I I think that I actually just recently read a book. um, uh, It was called uh, it's the next hundred years. Okay. Um, And I'm trying to remember the author. And, um, it, it's, it's by this, um, by this, uh, uh basically U S government, uh, a strategic guy hmm. that, that does like long-term strategy and trend global trends. And, um, and without a doubt, um, our space presence is going to be like, um, will either cement or, or, um, or, uh, um, ensure the demise of American superiority of, um, you know, of the, of basically the, the, the seaways and everything that makes like America kind of the, you know, the, the major power, um, basically like 
pretty soon, you know, what the forecast was is what's going to happen is you're not just going to have um, uh, communication and reconnaissance. Um, you know, there's, and there already is, I'm sure, but there, you know, there's weaponization and being able to take out targets, you know, at, at, in, in a moment's notice uh, mm-hmm. with, with, with space-borne weapons. And then even something that was really interesting to me that it's, that, that was forecast to become on the horizon is with the, with the advent of increased um, uh, uh, battery technologies, uh, lithium-ion uh, increased capacities, and then also with the ability to, um, uh, to uh, transmit charge um, mm. remotely, right, through oh. microwave energy. Right. Um, you're, so much of military presence and everything is, is an infrastructure line whether it be gasoline, all the supplies that you need. Right. But what you're going to have is you're going to have like, you're basically going to have these, um, these military, military components that are going to be able to move much more freely and, um, and are going to be able to charge um, uh, with space-based um, uh, solar arrays and things like that. And, 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 um, and the military um, superiority is going to have a lot to do with that power transmission and who controls that um, and uh, what that's going to do for strategy. Anyhow, this was all out of this book, the next hundred years. And it is not like anything to do with NASA or or (laughs) any official mind. You know, this is just um, something that I thought was really interesting and kind of tied into your original question on, on whether those, these problems will persist. And I think it's human nature. Um, But it, it, you know, competition you could say is good in some ways a lot of times this stuff will drive us right to innovation i mean that's how we got to the moon was competition with russia right yeah yeah so 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 it's it is it's nefarious it's it, the motives are questionable but um the end result does isn't all bad sometimes yeah because of it you that's know? really cool man I mean, or yeah. not cool. I don't know. It's interesting, <laughs> yeah. nonetheless. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's certainly yeah. interesting. Yeah. So I want to yeah. I want to backtrack about something because there's something I wanted to make sure I talked to you about prior to losing you today. Um, so you know, we talked about it before. I even went ahead. I do a segment on the show called Mystery Friend, and. I, you know, I was a little shocked about like how few people from the dilemma days I talk to anymore. Um, so I actually dug up your old physics lab partner, Kevin Bannon. And oh, oh yes. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm sure you know. And he uh-huh. wrote something about you saying, I just remember how funny it was watching all the jocks and normies try to figure him out. Like this kid with huge ripped pants, a pooch shirt. And dirty mop of hair is actually a whiz kid and super chill. They couldn't compute. <laughs> Which is, again, you know, we mentioned it before as part of my recollection of you as well. And, and then, you know, you sort of coupled it with me remembering that we played in the living room of your parents' house and that your parents' house was kind of the that was like the safe place that we could all go chill. Um, yeah. Like we had basically an open door there. Uh, the pantry was open to us. I never got yelled at for anything. There is a bunch of people chilling there all the time. I, I think we, we got 
almost got caught smoking weed on the deck, like all sorts of stuff. Now, mm-hmm. as a parent, you know, I, I was really wondering like what your parents' philosophy was and like how the environment they set up, um, how beneficial it was for you and how intentional it was to create an environment like that. Yeah. I've kind of talked to him about this a little bit, you know, um, it's definitely interesting. I don't know whether I would have the patience just thinking of all the shit that we put them through, you know, but, um, I think it's, you know, this kind of goes to this world and, you know, and, and how things have changed, but like, you know, I guess the term for it really these days is, you know, free range kids, right. You know, um, and, uh, and yeah, they were just incredibly, you know, not, not really, um, I guess, uh, uh, they did. They didn't in, in, enforce or, or kind of. Um, they they allowed they allowed us to be kids, right, right. and to make mistakes, mm-hmm. you know. And even from a very early age, I'm just like, man. I was like, mom, did you really just like let me go at eight just to run around, you know, on my skateboard and my my bike? And I was coming home at like ten and eleven o'clock, and she's like, yeah, you know, like, and you know, it's like we play like you know, flashlight tag, like till late. And, you know, it's like, and they were always like, they were always pretty, you know, strict about the schoolwork component. Right. Me and me having to do well there. Sure. Um, and that was where they drew the line. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the philosophy really was, you know, according to my mom was just to, just to really, you know, just to let us be kids and not, not to have to encumber me with, with chores and, and, um, and just, uh, and just other, other kind of overhead there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So was there any like Avenue that you pushed that was like just a little too much for them? Oh God. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> dude. I mean, let's, let's face, I mean, could, I was such a horror, like I was a horrible kid in a lot of ways, <laughs> you know what I mean? And this is why, you know, there, there's no right way to parent, you know, it's just like, it's just like, what do you get? You know, but, but like, you know, if I can, if I can remember back, like, like, do you, Ben, do you remember like, like not a Bono? No. Does that r- ring a bell? I don't okay. think so. She was, she lived like three houses down from me. She was like three years older than us. Okay. And like when she was nine, she used to ride this bicycle with like a banana seat and you know, like the, the, um, the things coming down off the, off the handlebars, the like the little streamels. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like there was one day we, we always used to make fun of her because of her name. And, uh, dude, we found, like, I remember this, like I was like six and we found like a, a red used condom with ticklers on the side. Oh. And, uh, and, and, and we were like, and we, and we flagged her down and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and I was like, Hey, not a, do you want to try out the latest handle grip? Oh, and no. She's, yeah. And dude, I remember picking it up and threading the tassels oh. into this condom and we put it on our handle grip and she rode around for like three days, <laughs> just gripping this used condom. Oh man, dude! When when her dad found out what happened, like shit hit the fan. And that's just like one story. Like I remember, like we I had another like like uh, Dave Wax. He was we were playing football with him, and I, I didn't Dave like Wax. call. I grabbed like a crescent wrench out of my dad's tool chest and just started breaking every window in their house that I could find. Oh. I kind of remember that. 
Do you remember that? That actually rings a bell. Yeah. I mean, that kid was rough. Um, Yes. Because he, later in life, he also tried to sell us uh, green crayon shavings, pretending it was weed. Yeah. (laughs) Good for him. Not even dark green. It was like, it was very light green. I was like, come on, guy. That is, that's pretty funny. So that's where like, so, so there was discipline and there was like, you know, you going a little too far. You had to reel it back at some point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what I would have done. I remember you taking your dad's car, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would. And you were not old. You were like, what, 14, 15? 14. Yeah, Yeah. I was taking my dad. My dad had a sports car. And, you know, we, you know, my dad did okay for himself. You know, like, it's one of the things that I'm proud of. You know, he was, um, he was able to afford um, a sports car that we bought when I was six. And, and, and I kept it until when he gave it to me until I was like 32 and I sold it um, for another reason, but um, which is tough, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. So I, you know, we had this sports car and, um, and, you know, I was taking this thing out when I was like 14 years old and luckily I just never binned it. Um, but, but I got close, it, you know, you're just a teenager doing stupid shit. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And were you actually allowed, I know you had all the dirt bikes and stuff too. Were you actually like allowed to cruise on those like willy nilly like that? Or was that also stealing them and taking them out of the house? No, I mean, I had one dirt bike. I didn't have multiple and I, and, and dude, that was a crazy story. I was like wishing upon a star when I was five. Eventually I just stopped eating lunch and saving my lunch money. Right. And, and my dad said, if I could get together a thousand bucks, working like my my um that he would that he would get me and he would split it and Hmm. get me the dirt bike and so i eventually got it and the rule was that i had to push it to green acres which was and not ride it on the road so i would have to um kind of slyly you know um uh uh hide some of the road usage of that to get to places but that was crazy because you know that was another thing we had like a gang of dirt bikers in our neighborhood and this is like super suburban like yeah, there's like yeah, yeah. practically no greenery and the cops would just follow us they would try and catch us so hard but uh, you just can't catch anybody on a dirt bike <laughs> okay. because you there's no rules you know you're like going in between houses jumping curbs like you know <laughs> it's impossible that's so and, fun. Uh, yeah, and if people could was... only visualize the type of neighborhood this was that you guys are out running the cops it's hilarious yeah yeah so yep. so I've, you're i know you're like as you know did you ever, when you were that age, like have an aversion to speed at all? Or was it just like the second you got on one of those things, you really just had no fear? Oh, I mean, of course, everybody has fear, right. you know, uh, dude, I got spanked and I got the wind knocked out of me so many times, yeah, you yeah. know, where I couldn't breathe. And, sure. you know, it's like, no, I mean, to say there was no fear is ridiculous. I've just, <laughs> I've just been doing it for so long you know, both motorcycles and just like, whether you're on a skateboard or whatever it is, it, you just like, you, you learn to, to manage the margins, right. right. And to take calculated risks. Well, you know? I, I and, feel like you're managing the margins so much more thinly as you get older, where like, <laughs> I, I'm serious. I mean, you know, you go from yeah. like now into superbike racing and mountain climbing and you're, you're not, you're not old, you know, you still have a lot of years ahead of you. Like, um, do you feel like the older you get, you uh, you need just like a little bit more 
to feel that thing you felt like on the dirt bike? Like, does it just take a little more? Um, or do you have to like, do you have to have that fear that, that knowledge that, you know, one, you know, wrong move and you could, you know, you could die or something like, is that part of the thrill? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, definitely part of the thrill. I feel like this is like, now I'm turning into like this, like point break cheesy Shit. Oh, wow, you're a lot of things, <laughs> like, dude. Yeah, I know, I know. So I don't want to. I don't want to get. Oh, dude, you know, it's just being right on the edge, you know. Razor, just gotta live there. Like, I don't know, Ben. But there's something to man. it. I mean, I you just know? that that movie Free Solo I just watched with the. Oh yeah, Alex Honnold. Yeah, yeah. and you know that it's guy insane. is like his. Um, it's not just physically what he's doing. I thought the most fascinating thing about that documentary was was his philosophy on life mm-hmm. and death. And like, do you, do you think just you share like any of that getting, getting to the age you've gotten to now? I think so. I mean, I'm quite a bit older than him. I mean, I'm 41 now yeah. and you know, and, and, and I can't, and my mom can't believe I've, I have survived to this point <laughs> right. intact. Um, but like, I do think that there, you know, everybody gets chilled out a little bit. Like when I was 24 and 23 and like, you know, living up in, you know, and uh, being a snowboard um, bum and, right. and yeah. you know, in, in like uh, working as a bellhop, like, like, and early in my motorcycle racing career, I, I just, I took way more risks, you know, and, um, and I'm, you know, I everybody, I think everybody gets to that point where it's just not worth it. It's like, you're looking at it then as like a potential career path and you've got right. like something to prove. Right. Right, right. And it's like, and now it's like, I'm just trying to have fun and like live with myself, you know? And like, and that pushes me pretty hard, right. Mm. To, to like, to, to go hard. But like it, you know, it's like, I don't have anything to prove anymore and I just want to keep doing it. So I'm not willing to take the risks that are going to, that are going to cause me to not be able to do it, you know, because of an accident. Right. So it's really just about completing the task and finding your personal joy now. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like when I say be happy with myself, that also includes, you know, like being happy with my performance and, mm-hmm. and feeling like I'm, I'm making progress, you know, right. in certain areas, you know, so. Can yeah. you still, you still get real, like if you uh, just have an off day on the track or off day uh, climbing or something, do you, do you get real down on yourself? Um, I do. I, I do put a lot of pressure on myself, um, there, you know, it's like, um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm just doing it for fun, but like, it's still in the back of my mind, like where, you know, if if I know that, you know, that it's, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm just going to go. Yeah. You know, but (laughs) it, you know, it's, I'm still having fun. It's like, you know, smallest violin playing. It's like, (laughs) Jesus, you know, I'm not throwing a temper tantrum or anything like that, but it's just going to, push me next time, you know, to, to, to try and be better, you know, it's the mind of the engineer, right? Yeah. Yeah. For better, for worse, man. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. I, I have a lot of an analytical component and, um, you know, to my brain and the way it works. And I feel like in a lot of ways, like this job has like pushed me more towards that direction. And, Mm. you know, it's something that I don't like necessarily. It's like, my God, like, like I'm so, um, you know, doing this line of work, it, like it pushes your brain it pushes your mannerisms and your, um, and your, uh, your tendencies towards a very, um, uh, 
I don't know, robotic existence for, mm. you know, for another, you know, I mean, so it's got good things and bad things associated with it, but it's just like, I'm really trying to manage and like stay, you know, just, just stay not so engineering. Right. Yeah. That <laughs> makes know? sense. Got to be a kid still. Yeah, yeah. Like what's, uh, so that being said, like what's, what's in store for you? Do you think, um, I know, you know, the perseverance, right. Is, collecting samples that need to be picked up correct so that's right are you yeah. uh you know already in the engineering process of that you know the next um yes. mission to go get those samples yeah so that is um that's in the works and right now i'm slated to be on perseverance through our first sample collection that okay. is happening um it's basically uh baseline for for um end of june july time frame um and uh and and then once that happens then i'll start transitioning to another project and right now i'm trying to decide between two options there's um there's a mission that's coming up a little sooner that's called uh europa clipper and that is uh that's a, a probe uh uh satellite that we're sending out to jupiter's moon europa that's a very interesting moon and, um, and, and there's, there's a role there for me if I want to take it. And then the other option is to go to SRL, which is a sample return lander, and then work on the robotic arm, um, and work with, uh, some suppliers as well, um, uh, out in, uh, a place called Leonardo, uh, which is a, a robotics company in Rome, Italy. Oh, wow. And that would be pretty fun because it would involve a little bit of travel a couple times a year. Yeah. So I'm trying to decide between those two options. Wait, Brad, Jupiter came up. Give me the question real quick. <laughs> Can you design a robot that's meant to go to Jupiter? Oh, it's a good question. So that's from my son, Zeke. So I let him, uh, every once in a while, I asked him, I told him I'm speaking to a friend of mine today. Who builds mm -hmm. robots that go to space? What do you guys uh, want to ask him? Yeah, and that's what he wanted to ask you. And I, I was kind of curious too, because so it actually just came up. I'm, I'm shocked. So we're really going to Jupiter, huh? Yeah, we're going to Jupiter, and you, it's a little bit. You, you could really think of a satellite as a robot. Ah. Um, you know, it's it. It might not have like a head, <laughs> you know, but but it's got eyes. And it's got it's got mechanical functions, and and in a lot of ways, a satellite is a robot. That's true in, in every sense of the word. Huh. And so, um, so yes, we're building a robot to go to Jupiter. Um, if it would be something that you would think of as a robot, as looking like the Mars rover, or the um, or like Wally, or you know, <laughs> um, you know, any robot that you imagine in the movies, yeah, uh, that wouldn't really work on Jupiter because it's a gaseous giant and right. there's no surface, right? Um, so that kind of robot would go to Jupiter and would go to the one of the moons that's solid there. Got you. And yeah. when do you think a person is actually going to be able to to set foot on Mars? Do you have to build something prior to be able to? You know, oh, yeah. how is a human like like a total recall dome? Yes. Okay. Um, so so <laughs> one of the things people don't realize when we say about going to to Mars is it's not like going to the moon in that you can just go there and then just blast off and come back. Like planetary alignment dictates a certain timing oh. that is very um, long. 
<laughs> so right. when you go, A, it takes eight months to get there. Right. B, once you get there, I can't remember the exact months, but you have to wait there for the planets to align again. And you're talking about like, I want to say five to eight months and then an eight month return. Oh my so, goodness. Okay. So it's not like you can just go and come back, right. um, you know, and like that's at least that's not the mission profiles that, you know, that anybody's yeah, looking at right sure, now because sure. you just don't have the fuel to be able to do it. Anything's possible if you have unlimited fuel, but huh. that's just it's not it's not possible, essentially. So um, so, it you know, like there's a lot of stepping stones, Ben. There's and and there's and and, and I know that there's folks out there that are making some pretty wild claims about how fast we can do it. Yeah. Um, and, um, and if, if I had to guess, and this is me, not NASA yes. or JPL or anything else. Um, I think if we, if we maintain a pretty aggressive program and, um, and we're, uh, that's funded and where, where as currently NASA has, that's the main mission, you know, is to, is to get to Mars um, but we're going to get to the moon first to to help qualify the technology. Right. Um, you know, I'm thinking if I had to guess that we're talking 2035, 2040. Wow. That is not far away. That's it's awesome. not when you think of it, because, yeah, you know, we're, yeah. we're already 2021 here. That means know? my, my, my kids could be the first to go to Mars. Yep. So, okay. Yep. So sign them up for space camp now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man. Done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I would volunteer that for 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 your kids, but not for uh, the first but, one. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll wait till like twenty forty three for like round two or something. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Listen, yeah. if I have a uh, uh, a son or daughter in their twenties who are, um, you know, have the mental and physical fortitude to be the people who would even be considered to go to Mars. I have a feeling old pops, old retired cranky drummer is not going to be able to convince them otherwise, you know? Uh, <laughs> be surprised, man. Be surprised. Yeah. yeah. I, hope, I hope I still have some juice then. But yeah. <laughs> Torsen, I we've had you All for right. 90 minutes, man. Thanks so much for for coming on the podcast. I had so much fun catching up. Indeed. Yeah, guys, it was it was great to great to catch up. It was uh it was it was fun and um and I hope uh I hope that you you guys got some good, some good material, good takeaways. Uh it's fascinating. Thanks, Torsten. Make sure you wear a helmet out there. Uh, <laughs> all right, Ben. Take care, man. Wow. Houston, we don't have a problem. Brad, I feel I, I feel small. Oh, good. I feel infinitesimally small right like now. Like a tiny blue dot. Like a tiny blue dot. Dude, yeah. I thought it was hilarious that he basically was the guy in the beginning there where he's talking about when you asked him like whether his kind of hands-on gave him insight and he was he basically was saying that he was that guy in the movie that pushes the fucking jet past the red line. Like oh, that's yeah. what he was saying. He's like, you're right. He's like, you know, I have the, you know, he was, he was uh, like, he was the, he was 
Kirk telling Scotty, now give me more power. She can't take it, Jim. She can't yeah. take it. And he's like, no, I know we can go a little bit further. That's They've exactly gone to what... plaid. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what he was basically saying. Yeah. It's like, I know that this piece of metal can take more can take more punishment than what these computer That's tech right. guys are telling me. Yeah. <laughs> he's like the Steve Buscemi of like JPL. <laughs> Give oh me my more. god. Yeah, yeah, you're so right. That's, That's true. Funny, <laughs> oh, it's true though. I mean, I think what we were talking about it's big. Like you need you need a little bit of like badass and kind of like forward thinking psychopath to do this stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but yeah, and just the more that you meet like real people who have interesting you realize that like you know what, a lot movies are not that out, outrageous. There's a lot of incredible <laughs> right. people that are doing, like, he's literally that guy. You know, you yeah. watch that action movie and you're like, no way, man. Nobody would ever push a plane past the point that it's, you know, it would right. come apart, you know? But right. he's literally saying that that's what he, that, that's, that's what he exactly does. what he does. Yeah. <laughs> so if I trust anyone to take us into the black hole, it's Torsten. <laughs> yeah, right. no, you're totally right. It is like intense. And I feel like, uh, just as you go and go, you know, cause I, I was thinking about it in my scale and I'm like, all right, so you spend, you know, he, he, uh, laid it all out for us, you know, like how long it takes from the point of like inception and research and design to like get these things together. And then all these tiny little components come together in this final piece and you send it up. Like that must be such a rush of adrenaline every time like it goes up it comes down it makes a move you know oh, you're yeah. like hanging on the edge of your seat yeah and i could see like the same way uh like a musician gets accustomed to you know playing music and this high rush of ups and downs how someone in his position could take on you know uh you know what is it super bike riding and oh, yeah. <laughs> and mountain climbing and and things that would give you like a adrenaline rush, a man. similar adrenaline rush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really intense, man. It's funny. It's really, funny. I don't think I'm like you. I mean, now it's different with kids, but I, I kind of be interested to go to space. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't have like, you know, I don't feel like dedicating my life to it, but <laughs> like, uh, Oh, don't get me wrong. If I could get a, a first class ticket on the shuttle and go, uh, you know, after it's been well vetted for safety, I would love to go up and spend a couple days in the space station for sure. So you're like, a, so you're ready when there's like spacecations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like the glamping of space yeah. travel. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't need to dedicate like you know, 15 years of my life to get you know to go into outer space on a sketchy rocket that like has a you know a one in 50 chance of blowing up. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. I feel like it's different now too. I mean, you know, I I remember the story of not, not Neil Armstrong and not Buzz Aldrin, the other guy who I always (laughs) forget his name, I'm afraid, but you know, he was known for taking like what maybe he might've been the loneliest man in the world once because he was on like the dark side of the moon by himself. Exactly. You know, like that is some crazy, crazy exploring, you know, that's like, oh, it's bold. (laughs) It's bold, Brad. It is. It's very bold. (sighs) I mean, those machines were really, you know, 
they were not, you know, what do they say that the, all the computers on that freaking on that, uh, that first lunar landing trip, you know, were, were infinitesimal compared to what's in your iPhone right now. Sure. I mean, but the point I was making with the man being alone on the other side is like, now I literally follow astronauts on Instagram. Oh yeah. Who are literally like sending videos of how they're like attempting to make a pizza on Friday and like (laughs) anti-gravity, like up in their spaceship, you know? I guess maybe it is, it is cush enough now that I could. Yeah. It's like, that's (laughs) what I'm saying. It's getting there. We're like, you know, even like, uh, you know, what, what Neil Armstrong and them did was like touring before cell phones, you know, like they were actually out there, you know, all you were getting was this little audio back. You didn't know what was going on yet. And now you got live feeds from space, you know, like, uh, you could become a social media celebrity from the moon if you wanted to. (laughs) True that. So I think it's time. I think it's time. (laughs) This is how I raise my Instagram followers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, that was super fun. Um, I'm really thankful to Torsten for putting up with my uh, bad drum playing for, <laughs> for our youth and, and staying a friend of mine and giving us all that great information. That was so fucking rad, man. Yeah, great combo uh, for sure. And I like what he said early on. I think people should take a clue from that these days, you know? Just fucking focus for like yeah. 10 minutes, people. Like... You know, don't just watch the YouTube for 30 seconds. Read the damn manual, you know? Yeah. I really believe in it. And, you know, if you want a a precursor to it from someone, you know, very successful, take it from him, you know? Absolutely. Let's get out of here. All right. We'll see you next week. All right. Love you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.